listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Drishti Point Yoga Radio 102.7 FM. I'm your host, Madhuri, and I have an amazing guest here this evening, Mia Califf. Welcome, Mia. Thank you, Madhuri. Mia Califf is a Vancouver-based doctor of chiropractic and a healer. She's the author of The Secret Life of Babies, Decoding the Cultures of Birth, Love, and Violence. Her experience in private practice while working with people of all ages using craniosacral therapy and pre- and perinatal therapy has her examining how experiences from preconception through the first three years shapes our bodies, brains, behaviors, and our windows into our societies and our ancestral inheritances. She gives workshops internationally and is curious about how village life can be remembered into the modern day. Mia is also a lifetime member of the Association of Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. Our topic today, our jumping point and our springboard is From Consciousness to Form. And Mia, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about your own personal journey and how you are, how and why you're practicing the way that you are today. Well, when I was a kid, I was an athlete and a dancer and got injured quite a bit. My mom was involved in athletics as well and teaching dance, and she had a keen interest in nutrition and alignment, so she was pointing my attention to what could be at the root of why I was always injured. And so as a young kid, 11, 12 years old, I would find myself, you know, getting x-rays down of joints, and I was learning a lot about rehabilitation at that age. And because I became so attuned to my body, it made me curious about how bodies work. So um, after my athletic career ended with an injury, a rowing injury, I got really curious about how to get to the root of pain, and that led me into actually a chiropractor's office. And he convinced me that, um, you know, maybe there was a root to pain that was also emotional, and I'd never given that thought before. So at 19 years old, it was like a light turned on in my in my being that there's more to the story than the physical. And it whet my appetite to learn more, so I decided I wanted to become a doctor and gain credentials so I could work with people at that level. And then what shifted, uh, I know now you're practicing, uh, your focus is more on cranial sacral work. So what was the shift there for you? Mm-hmm. Well, because I learned that the emotional body and the spiritual elements of our being are also a part of our wholeness, I was listening very carefully while in chiropractic college for who would actually speak about it. And it never really crept out in the conversation, and understandably so. Chiropractic, for at least the last 30 years, has been very scientifically based and really trying to keep up with the expectations the medical model has. So a friend asked me if I would go and study craniosacral, and I'd been saying no to just about every opportunity, and then something said, yes, go. And that was where I came into contact with a technique that was an inroad into all that I was interested in. And I loved uh, craniosacral therapy's capacity, even in the early days, to bring people into the place where they could heal old trauma. And can you just explain a little bit, in case some of our listeners aren't familiar with craniosacral therapy, just what it is and how it works? Mm -hmm. Well, for those of you who have had more than one craniosacral practitioner, you may be able to say that it's not the same depending on who's doing the work, but I would describe it as a hands-on technique, 
and it's designed to remove pressure from your brain, your spinal cord, and even your emotional world and spiritual world. So people will oftentimes find themselves moving into positions reminiscent of the position they were in when they first absorbed an imprint or uh, a memory of a challenging experience. And this technique has the ability to dialogue with someone when they're in that position so that they're able to reframe it and release the pressure that's still living in their bodies from that time. It doesn't always go in that direction, but it can and has the capacity to. And is that your your own personal uh, perspective and interest in it so what i'm wondering is do all craniosacral craniosacral therapists move in that direction or is that something that you feel very passionate about and has directed the way Mm. that you practice that's a good question certainly um if the opportunity arises where someone has something going on in their present day and they just don't know what's causing it, but they have the sense that there's something under the surface that they can't get at, it's a wonderful tool to use, but it's not for everyone and not every session goes that way. Um, I've definitely had a lot of transformation in my life using that technique for myself. So it's one adjunct to all the different paths into our wholeness. So it sounds like a very holistic approach to healing, mm-hmm. working on that the unity of mind-body paradigm. Mm-hmm. But nothing is uh, left behind there. Mm-hmm. And I would say that you know working in the emotional body is only one piece, like you say, of the of the totality or the holism. And um, it's also not necessary if we're in communities that also that hold us in a comprehensive manner just being in relationship to with a bunch of people who see us can be just as healing so it's not the only way to clear out the emotional body Mm. thanks for that clarification (laughs) uh you've got this book the secret life of babies and you've got your chiropractic or sorry your cranial sacral practice and i'm curious about uh how the interest in babies and the focus there and this secret life apparently they have and Mm -hmm. how it uh, spurred your interest and where your uh, excitement about that came from. Mm -hmm. Well, in craniosacral therapy, like I mentioned, people can often recount memories of early experiences. So people were on my table in the early years of my practice having memories of being born in their early years. And I found that quite compelling because here were people in their fifth, sixth, seventh decades recounting uh, aspects of their early life that were shaping their whole life. And here they were at the end able to suddenly clear some of those things out. And in 2003, I met uh, a now teacher of mine named Ray Castellino, who practices in Santa Barbara, Ojai area in California. And he brought, he brings together several techniques, including craniosacral therapy, but has broadened it out to include pre and perinatal psychology. And pre and perinatal means before, during, and after birth, and as early as conception or even preconception. So how do those influences shape, like you mentioned at the beginning, our brains, our bodies, and our behaviors? And once I encountered his work, I knew I was done. (laughs) I actually had to leave my practice because I knew this was the bar I now wanted to work at. So I took a little break until I could get my head around that huge story, how it came to be, and then returned and created a company called Emerging Families, which now tends to that aspect in culture and in our community. Hmm. Sounds like a very powerful and pivotal pivotal. Mm -hmm. Uh, pivotal <laughs> thank you <laughs> teaching and teacher and how it really shifted things mm-hmm. so the experience from preconception preconception through the first years uh, 
you mentioned shapes our bodies, our brains, and our behaviors. Can you speak to the experience of preconception and how that happens? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a big story, and um, you know many spiritual traditions speak to this, like the Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic tradition, and the Vedic tradition. They all describe how there are these multiple worlds starting at the broadest and the most connected to the oneness, and then there's differentiation as we come down through worlds. And there's no mistake in, you know, in, even in the Aramaic ancient Hebrew language that there's a plurality to God. It's called Elohim, multiple faces of God. And as form takes on a shape here in this planet, in this life, and being human, being plant, being animal, it's like a condensation or a precipitation of that oneness into form. And so I like to talk about something called the conception field and a field being uh, an organized space that matter takes on the shape of. And the climate that two people or one person and say assisted reproduction or two people and the surrounding village, the form that they take as that child enters their lives, and I mean is called in, tends to shape their sense of self, their sense of whether they matter, their sense of who they belong to. And um, that actually shows up in the pregnancy, in the way the pregnancy goes, and it will show up in birth and how birth plays out, and it will show up in stages of our lives and will manifest in the architecture of our bodies, our posture, where, you know, you may have a friend that you can recognize from blocks away coming towards you, and you say, oh, I know who it is because of that's how they walk. What you're actually seeing are the currents that have shaped them, even from their time coming into form. So it's no small thing. And um, I actually would love to read a little something written by um, Jack Cornfield in his book, A Path with Heart. It talks about um, how deep a tradition that is of welcoming spirit into form in other traditions, if I may. Please. Okay. So it's called Song of the Spirit. There's a tribe in East Africa where true intimacy is fostered even before birth. In this tribe, the birth date of a child is not counted from the day of its physical birth or even the day of conception as in other village cultures. For this tribe, the birth date is set the very first time the child is a thought of in its mother's mind. Aware of her intention to conceive a child with a particular father, the mother then goes off to sit alone under a tree. There she sits and listens until she can hear the song of the child that she hopes to conceive. Once she has heard it, she returns to her village and teaches it to the father so they can sing it together as they make love, inviting the child to join them. After the child is conceived, she sings the song to the baby in her womb. She then teaches it to the old women and midwives of the village, so that throughout the labor and the miraculous moment of birth, the child is greeted with its song. After birth, all the villagers learn the song of their new member and sing it to the child when she falls and hurts herself. It is sung in terms of triumph, in rituals, and initiations. This song becomes a part of the marriage ceremony when the child is grown, and at the end of life, his or her loved ones will gather around the deathbed and sing this song for the last time. And every time I read that, I do get a little teary because it not only speaks of this, you know, gem that we are entrusted with, whether you call that our consciousness, soul, you know, all the traditions have different words for that. 
But I think in our culture here today in this place and in many northern and western cultures, it speaks to something that may not have been done for us. And it's that collective longing that I think is at the heart of a lot of our initiatives for community building, for healing, for setting things right. Because we've we've missed something. And some people got that, and you can see it in them. They have a sense of knowing about this place being theirs and this home being theirs. Uh, so I really appreciate this this time in history where we're remembering um, our own indigenous ways, maybe not the ones whose cultures are still intact, but that we have it within us to remember how to do this. And that's the bigger story of what Emerging Families is, is to get behind that kind of remembering that really stewards consciousness into form and throughout life, even to the deathbed with that song. And that song and and that story, it makes me question or curious about whether the mother uh, is calling in the spirit or the consciousness or the soul of that child or is the child being called in or is it a two-way street? Is there some communication going on? What is your belief or take on how consciousness comes into form as far as the soul of the parent and the soul of the child. I'm not sure if you would even agree mm-hmm. with those terms, but um, mm-hmm. what's your take on it? It's a good question. Um, yeah, I agree with you that the vocabulary is limited in our language for what to call it, so maybe we won't focus so much on what is it or who is it that's coming, but let's say some, someone comes <laughs> comes in. I I try not to know how it works until I hear from someone or have my own experience about what their perception or my perception is. And so when I'm working with um, people, say, in a workshop environment and they are renegotiating a conception imprint or preconception journey, I tend to use a compass rather than right and wrong. What is it that seems to give their tissues release and seems to bring coherence to the moment? And I'm tracking that rather than right or wrong about what is the preconception journey. So, for example, um, when, the, when the session begins, there's usually a certain amount of tension and a certain amount of movement that a person, like I said, will move into a position reminiscent of the one they were in when they first took on an imprint. And whatever brings ease to that and coherence to them and the room, and it's a felt sense that everyone can register, I trust that as being accurate rather than this is how it works. Someone chooses, someone doesn't choose. Um, but I've seen a whole variety of people not being ready and feeling like they were pushed into life. And I've seen people be excited and charge forward and say, I'm picking this mother, this father. I've seen a whole variety. And actually some studies have been done, some scientific studies of um, young children in Japan, actually. And before our break, can you touch upon the preconception journey? What is that? (laughs) You're asking the big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just before the break? (laughs) Yeah, just in, you know, two minutes, sum that up. (laughs) The preconception journey. Well, let's say what conception is. Conception is, you know, everyone would have a different range of time, but let's say zero to 50 hours after lovemaking. There is a cellular process called fertilization where the chromosomes from mother and father meet and then cell division happens. And within about 40 hour, 48 hours, you have about 100 cells. 
but there is something called conception and that is the idea when you know whoever you are prior to having the brain to support who you are and the body to support who you are lingers around and perhaps enters and so preconception is the time before the lovemaking and before the actual combination of cells and preconception I think defies space and time or is located within space and time but can't necessarily be located to our definition of space and time because I believe I mean this is stretching I've never thought about it before but I think it stands outside of this world so I'm not sure if we can talk about time frame mm-hmm well, thanks, and we'll let our listeners contemplate that. You're listening to CFRO, Vancouver Co-op Radio, 102.7 FM, Drishti Point Yoga Radio. I'm your host, Maduri, and I'm here with Mia Califf. Before the break, Mia and I were touching upon the topic of bringing consciousness to form. And in your book, Mia, The Secret Life of Babies, I know that you talk about and expand upon four principles. And I'm wondering if you could... Tell us what those principles are and elaborate on them. The first one being babies remember their experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, for a lot of people, um, when they start doing healing work, they have a hard time trusting what's at the root of what they come to. We, we're in a culture where there are a lot of um, there's a lot of a habit of giving away our authority and our own intuition, and it's difficult to trust ourselves. So I felt it was important to get into that controversy about memory because there is a lot of conversation about, well, how would I trust, you know, that, you know, I'm having this memory of being three years old, let alone an infant birth, because, you know, we're not taught that we have memory prior to the time we're verbal. There seems to be a connection between words and memory and those that words authenticate memory. And because I've been around it so much and seen so many people go through pre-verbal experiences that they remember and the the memory itself is in the body, it's in the position, it's in the emotion, sometimes it's wordless, I felt it was important to speak to that. So there is this concept around memory and there's two different kinds of memory. So when I say people, the babies remember their experiences, I don't mean the kind of continuous memory where you say, oh yeah, I remember the time I bumped my knee and you know, so-and-so was there and I went to the hospital or had stitches. It's a, that's called continuous memory or explicit memory. And in, you know, neuroscience these days, they're talking about discontinuous memory or implicit memory, which is really a body-centered memory that may or may not have clear sequences to it and words. So it's important to include that in the conversation around this work so that we give credence to babies who do remember their experiences. So is it like an impression on a physical or energetic level, like an imprint in the person's being that they retain throughout their life? You could say that. And, you know, for a lot of, I mean, this is kind of under renovation in my own awareness right now. So I'm kind of speaking off the cuff. I used to believe that, yeah, it was something we house in our bodies. And the more I look into, um, say, the work of Rupert Sheldrake, and morphic resonance, I begin to admit that it's um, a bit less less tangible than in our bodies, that there is actually more of something called resonance. And again, all the other traditions do talk about that as well, like Akashic Records and Karma and that kind of thing. And so his work that's coming out of Cambridge University, and he's teaching, you know, all about this around the world, is more like we come into resonance with something that we had to identify with to survive, and it continues to be our mode until we find a new mode that we 
prefer to resonate with that's maybe closer to our essential nature. So I think um, when we talk about the emanation of creation exuding through us into form and taking the shape of us, we have intact and whole within us the, the memory of our essential nature of that oneness that we come from. And then we can take on what you could describe as a cloak or various layers of clothing that resonate with, say, traumatic events or unwanted experiences or just experiences that resonate more with our families or in our ancestry that may, not, may or may not resemble our essential nature. And so we go through life presenting these, these cloaks or these outer wares, and they seem to us to be our essential nature and be who we are and our personality, and people take us as those. But as we go through this work and, you know, get into communities that are strong and healthy and cooperative that grapple with the bigger questions, we start to shave away some of those outer cloaks, and our essential nature emerges um, more brilliant, more bright, and becomes like a throne for us to do our living through rather than a seat for our challenges and troubles and, and difficulties. Hmm. So that's babies remembering our experiences. That's, it's really, I mean, I find it fascinating, and I've heard before that the, the period of time between, uh, maybe it's even earlier than birth, conception until the age of seven is very paramount in the development of a child's uh, understanding of who they are in the world, their belief systems, uh, what they believe about themselves. Do you feel that this is true? I do. Um, is that the time frame you give that as well? or is that? Yeah. It, well, it's certainly in the yogic um, world and in the world when we even in science, when we talk about hormonal development and brain development, there is, there is a threshold at seven years old that is a transition point and you, you see it in the organ functions of the thymus gland it recedes you see it in the type of responsibilities a child wants to take on like there are all sorts of evidence that there's definitely a transition point at seven years old there's also a transition point at three years old there's a transition point at one years old when you start walking and individuating away from your mother it's the first time you know you're separate from her body there are there are many many stages and what I'm interested in are the, are the foundational stages for the following stages. So I tend to concentrate, and they're not exclusively important, but I tend to concentrate on the first month of pregnancy as being a foundational stage for later stages of gestational development, birth, early life, and, and life. And I'll just um, wrap a caveat around that. And it's not that if we don't get it right at that time that that's it. I mean, the fourth principle was is it's never too late to heal. So I'm a big uh, supporter of that belief. And rather than being the only time um, we're imprinted, I would say that the early period, you know, up to seven years, but certainly that first stage of pregnancy is, and, and, and gestation and birth are actually a window through which to watch the myths and patterns not only of our lives, but our family's lives and our grandparents' lives and our ancestors' lives, there seems to be a lens that amplifies a bigger field, a bigger story that shows up. And if we have a listening for it, we're able to differentiate maybe more information than only how to carry this child. And during that time period, what what would you recommend to mothers or perhaps it's both mother and father uh, to bring into their awareness? Mm-hmm. Well, in, in indigenous cultures, uh, sometimes they're spending up to two years in the preconception, in the planning, preconception planning. And sometimes it's very simple. It's eating a good diet. It's um, doing some reflecting on your life. It's making sure that you have at least eight to ten adults 
12 adults around you who are your village and are prepared to carry you through this journey. And that's like at a minimum that there's elders in your clan and, and not only people who have grown old, but those who have gone through an initiative process in their youth that have matured into a stage where they can really be pillars for your family life. And so preconception planning um, in our culture looks like a nutritional approach right now. And that's excellent because already that's bringing you into attunement that you're stewarding uh, consciousness that's going to come in. And we can do more. We can, you know, galvanize those communities and, and really understand that the next generation that comes in are going to become our leaders, our doctors, our janitors, our, you know, future caregivers. And um, it can be a delightful piece to remember. Hmm. Thank you. Your second principle is the one that really sparks my curiosity. Consciousness precedes the brain architecture to support it. Whoa. I know. <laughs> consciousness, I'm going to say that again. Consciousness precedes the brain architecture to support it. Do tell. Yeah, it's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> and I, I have to say, you know, that everything in this book has been more my observation and me passing on what I've seen rather than, you know, it's not original information. Um, back in 2007, I met up with, um, well, I was at a conference, an international conference, um, where all of these people who speak this language get together and share their work. And one of those people is Akira Ikagawa, and he's a obstetrician in Japan lovely man and uh, he barely speaks English but we somehow understood each other and I, I bought his books and um, what he what he, he inadvertently stumbled into in his work in his practice was you know two-year-olds three-year-olds five-year-olds they were uh, spontaneously recounting their experiences preconception conception and gestation and birth um, and he thought, oh, gosh, I've got to record this and do an actual scientific study. So he interviewed about 3,500 children under the age of seven just to see how many of them would recount these experiences. And he found 30 to 40 percent, which is a statistically significant number, could recount um, an experience. And um, in my online program uh, for birth recovery, I, I read from his book, and it's... Um, quite precious the way these children speak of it like to the effect of you know I was as small as a little pig in my eyelids I could see through and you know someone told me it's time to go and so I went down this canal that was warm and soft and, you know <laughs> all these things and um and then the mothers it, what's really compelling sometimes is when the children speak about pre preconception journeys like one boy says I was, you know, on a cloud with two other boys, and we looked down, and we said, that mummy looks nice. We're going to go to that mummy. And he was the firstborn, and she said, there was no way I could have known that I would have two more boys, and I did. Or things like, uh, I was put in a plastic tub, and mummy couldn't touch me. And then the mother will say, well, he had no idea that he would have been put in an isolate or an incubator. So when people of that stature start doing the scientific work and there is scientific evidence up to like 80 years ago it hasn't been broadcasted you got to start to wonder why that's you know but not part of our cultural conversation so when children of those um, ages recount those stages then we have to wonder is brain the residence of mind 
And I know that in contemplative practices, we're already discussing that, like, is consciousness in the mind? Is it in the brain? Where does it live? And I kind of like leaving that question unanswered and simply wondering aloud together. It's a bit more recreational. Um, (laughs) So it's true also because if you look at neurodevelopment or um, brain development, technically we don't begin to form memory through brain structure until about the second, uh, second trimester when the limbic system starts to develop. And you could maybe say that memory starts in the first trimester when the reptilian brain, which is the lowest, most primal center of the brain that is akin to the reptiles, develops, which is really only about, uh, should I mate with this? Should I eat this? Or should I run from it? And it doesn't quite explain the complexity of these memories of these children and and certainly people that have been on my table and and myself included. So um, when I, when those words are, you know, memory precedes the brain architecture to support it, it's meant to stop you in your tracks to give credence again to how important it is to call consciousness in prior to form existing because we create part of the shape that that form will take by how our arms are positioned when we make that call. Hmm. And something that just came to me as you were saying that, maybe I'm way off track here, but the con- the level of consciousness or the vibration of consciousness, does that literally change the physiological shape, texture, size of things like the brain, the limbic system, the whole, the endocrine system, the whole being? Yes. Uh, you know Emoto's work on water and you know, cellular structure of uh, snowflakes and crystals of frozen water. I mean, that, and for those who don't know about that, um, even if we're not talking about, well, we could talk about it in the form of wind, you know, uh, wind will shape around structure. And if, if we're blowing, the, if the breath of life is being blown into form, the exhale of, of creation is coming into form, then it will take on the shape of its vessel. And certainly the vibrational, if you could call it that, resonance um, that we set whether it's the tune of the song that we sing or the vibration of the argument or the imprint of alcohol at conception. We will, we will morph to accommodate that so that we are to survive and be as close or as like to the environment that we're conceived into as possible. And that's simply intelligence at work, to become as like as possible, so to carry on. That makes perfect sense. Let's pause there. Uh, we've been through the first two principles. Welcome back to CFRO 102.7, Vancouver Co-op Radio Show, Drishti Point Yoga Radio. <laughs> I'm your host, Maduri, and I'm here with Mia Califf this evening talking about the topic of consciousness to form. Obviously, this is an immense topic, and we're touching upon uh, some of what has been birthed out of Mia's book, The Secret Life of Babies. And before the break, Mia was talking about uh, two of her principles from the book, and I just wanted to follow up and hear about the last two. The next one I love, um, Babies Are the Barometer. Mm -hmm. Barometer of what? Yeah. Well, I started uh, after getting inspired to write this book in 2007. I was at a conference, and, and everyone said, well, you know, why are we such a small group in the world? that knows about the importance of the pre- and perinatal period, and what are you going to do about it? So I thought, well, I'll do something. And it turned out a few months later I started writing this book. And so what I did was I looked at a lot of the research and the pioneers who have come before me. And I think 
this one piece of information sort of speaks to this principle the best. And uh, there's a psychohistorian, his name is Lloyd DeMouse, and he did a lot of um, reviewing of history, and he looked at some of the pre- and perinatal themes in wartime. And what he discovered is that there seems to be this arc, pre-war, during war, and post-war, where these archetypes of the mother start to become used in reference to the conflict. So he would say, or, or let's say when Saddam Hussein was hot on the press, and um, you know they would talk about this being the mother of all battles, or they were cartoons of him dressed up or, or pictured as a pregnant mummy with a bomb. And he was suggesting that maybe societies recount collectively their own pre- and perinatal experiences when we go into societal and larger larger scope experiences like war. Now, it's a very small way to put that statement. I mean, that could be several books in itself, and maybe, but not, not necessarily by me. But what I've been looking at is how we as people inherit not only our habits personally, but we inherit them culturally. So another example would be a lot of this continent is founded on individuation from quote-unquote the motherland. How many people's people arrived here and separated from the motherland, left behind family, left behind their faith, some of their customs, and forged a new way that found them independent of some of those roots. Now, it wasn't the first time in history that that migration has happened. That's a, that's a current that's been alive for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, we used to be semi-nomadic. But there was a time where movement was a part of nature and was a part of following the land, following the animals, and moving in a pattern before pre-agrarian. Agrarian. But then when we started becoming reliant on agriculture and we had to keep things fixed because we were reliant on being in one place, suddenly we, we ran into more conflicts. We wanted the weather to stay the same. We couldn't take disasters the same way. Our capacities for change changed. And what you see at that time in history is also the first evidence of war and the first evidence of violence. And so I've been really curious about how babies today are emissaries, not only of their own health, not only of their parents and what their parents have to say even to grieve, but all the things that have never been spoken in a family, in an ancestry, and in a people. And not that the, all the responsibility is on the baby to fix that, certainly not at all, but they're a clear canvas upon which to watch these currents that have been inherited over many, many, many years. And if we learn to decode their language, I feel that we're going to have a handhold into how to be resilient here on this planet and sustainable in the way that the ecological movement would wish for us. And how many generations do you think we're holding on to as, as babies coming into this world? Does it go back only so far, or is it infinite? I don't have the answer. You I don't? <laughs> I brought you here for the answer. <laughs> have me back next year. <laughs> I'll, look into, I'll look into it. Um, I, in my practice, I have seen, um, let's say, the ungrieved tears of two or three generations. So... Um, ancestors as far back as the ones we have names for. But I don't know if there's any way for me in my limited humanness to tell just how large the lineage is that we inherit. All I know is that when people go to do their own healing work or transformational work, 
they find it very challenging and it's slow. And I think anyone in progressive culture would say, why is it so hard? I suspect this is part of why is this is old. And I think we need to be a bit not easy on ourselves, but compassionate that it's not meant to be an all when one fell swoop or on our shoulders exclusively that we're in a, in a process in a spiral of moving towards something that's drawing us. And here we are today. These are our dilemmas and they're unique to this time. And some of them are quite old. Hmm. And so here we are as, as adults and our mother didn't sing the right birth song and we didn't <laughs> get the proper delivery and all that. So is there any hope left? <laughs> yeah, this is it's funny. It's not funny. One time I was in a postnatal group and I was talking to about 20 moms and their babies and I, I started talking about you know the influences that certain emotional states would have on babies during gestation. And this was early on. I was pretty green. And one mom was furious and went running out of the room crying. <laughs> and I do like to say, you know, this is not about having done it wrong. This is... Um, you know, and what I've seen is it is never too late to get even experiences that you may have missed. So, for example, um, in my practice, I work with a lot of families who have just come out of a birth that was less than desirable for them. So they've had a lot of birth interventions where chemicals were used, anesthetics and instruments, maybe even cesarean, which is surgery to remove the baby. And mother's enormous heartbreak is in that they didn't get to birth at home or whatever they wanted to do. And there's some shock left over from the surgical experience and the speed with which those transitions usually take place. And and I didn't know this happened until I started doing this work. But you get people into a safe and slowed down environment. Birth, no matter where it was interrupted, will pick up where it was interrupted and complete. And so mothers will have contractions again. Babies will start moving as though they're going down the birth canal. They'll revisit the places where the interruptions happened. They'll cry and let you know what it was like. Mothers will have tears, and it finishes. Mm -hmm. So um, that essential nature that is born to us and breathed into us persists in a way that leads us home to that wholeness. And it isn't rocket science at all. You don't need you know, a PhD to figure out how to get back home to that place. But I think it's these qualities of slowness, compassion, and this very intimate listening for what's in the spaces in between what we're taught that can allow that um, circle to start moving back towards itself and complete. We'll never be able to rewrite history, but we can change how it lives in our present day. And mother's bodies, um, their tissues will resolve and feel much better after that too if they're not healing. Hmm, that's so beautifully said. Hmm. Um, I know that in your, your work as an individual healer, you're also very involved in community and that that's very important to you in your life. And I'm curious as to how or what role does this, does your work, your individual work, play out in a larger context, in the context of the village community, mm-hmm. uh, environmentally perhaps, or uh, globally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for asking that. It is close to my heart. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, as someone who's been working in healthcare for 15 years, I've been wondering how can we do this better, or how can we, how can we save money, time, and make this a more joyous experience? Because healing seems to be a lot about loss and about difficulty, and there's a lot of isolation in it. And it doesn't make sense to me when we're built to be pack animals and you know social animals. And I see a lot of mothers walking around by themselves 
with their babies. And I know just from reading history and, and even the way I grew up that there's a way where we can all be together and share responsibility. And so I thought a lot about what role does, um, you know, whole families play in whole villages and whole communities. And, um, you know, the more I look into it and the more I learn from some of my teachers, it seems that there are a handful of pillars in village life that we must tend to. And so one of them is child child making, child bringing. Another is initiation of youth and, um, you know, kind of in a way just, even though it sounds harsh, killing off the sense of I'm at the center of my universe so that a child can then grow up to become responsible and eventually an elder in the community. So elder, elderhood is another pillar. And the way we die is another rite of passage or um, very important offering, if you can imagine it, that we make back to the life that gives us life. So um, here in Vancouver, and certainly down this entire left coast, there is an amazing upswelling of community building initiatives. And I'm involved in a group called Emergence, um, where a whole group of us really want to see sustainable, resilient community come alive, but not only for the sake of bringing our new ideas to the forefront, but I think it's a piece about remembering what once was and bringing it into the present day, even though it won't look the same. How can we remember back in what, you know, our ancestral inheritances, our own indigenosity, and and share that with the systems that we have in place today. Because really, you know, if you look at how the body knows how to heal, how our essential nature needs, you know, knows how to reemerge, then it must follow that communities can do that, families can do that, businesses can do that, that all our systems, all our vessels of expression could be could emulate the same life being breathed into form that everything could be a song back to life of us celebrating what's been given rather than continuing to take without an awareness of it's been given to us and what do you think the key is to that (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) well i'm curious because of the the broader context that you're using, like I'm thinking, you know, businesses singing that song mm-hmm. of life, like what does that really look like on a practical level? How does yeah. that manifest? What does, how does that show up really in our communities and in our businesses and in our families? And what yeah. does, where, how's that look? Yeah. Well, I, I know some people who you might want to invite in, um, you know, in our, in our emergence group, we have, um, we're supporting one of our friends who's got uh, an initiative called Seedstock going. So local economy is one way to build up um, intimacy between businesses and individuals and our resources so that we can appreciate where our goods are coming from and um, look into the eyes of, of the people that we are in commerce with. And um, uh, one of my next steps that I'd like to do is um, connect with leaders of businesses and government and start really small in their personal story and somehow come to a place with them where they can recover the felt sense of them mattering. You know, maybe they missed, I mean, certainly a lot of us have missed some of these intricate stages of of being sung in. And how can we go about dialoguing and giving experiences back to people who are in places of influence that doesn't necessarily say, you know, we're going to take you into your pre and perinatal experience, but get them into an environment where they can feel themselves again and, and feel their their absolute 
integral importance in the whole of life so that when they go to steward their company, their government, their team, it emanates through them and uh, they're reinfected with that celebration. So I really see that um, already happening in our world and I'm not the only person talking about it, but that's, I think, one road in. Hmm. Wonderful. I love that you've, you've obviously thought about this a lot mm. uh, and I know from talking to you that this is such a paramount part of the way you are in, in the world and what drives you and motivates you and I, I'm i grateful for that expansion in my own mind of going, aha, so it sounds like the perhaps one of the keys to the impact is awareness of even just thinking of, oh, local commerce, right? We're going to go to the farmer's market instead of the Safeway or those things that may not be, that we may not connect to so consciously as being what is really bringing people closer and shifting the world, those simple things that uh, we can all take part in if we choose to and that do that do actually have an effect and have an impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in small ways it's doable and, and it's doable together. Hmm. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming here and joining us this evening and for sharing your wisdom and your depth of knowledge and I'm very inspired by the work that you're doing in the world and how you're really I know the focus is really on babies but to me it speaks to the whole cycle of life from preconception to beyond death and how that beautiful cycle I'm just thinking of gardening like that um, the cycle of of everything is is really what you're speaking to in my mind and heart anyway mm. Thank you, Madhuri. It's my honor to be here. I'm grateful for being asked. Thank you. Can you let people know where they can get in touch with you? What's coming up on your plate, uh, your website? I can be found at emergingfamilies.com. And we also, as a group, have a website called treeyouth.com, T-R-E-E-U-T-H, where a lot of uh, local and uh, global teachers and thinkers are, are platforming their thoughts on on these big subjects and yeah and what projects or exciting things are coming up i'm about to release the second edition of the secret life of babies um it had a few years out there in the world and i got some amazing feedback from midwives and doctors and mothers and concerned citizens so it's it's been repackaged and i don't have a date yet but it's also available right now in its first edition at Banyan Books and online at Amazon and um, off my website, emergingfamilies.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mia. And you're listening to CFRO 102.7 FM. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.